0: All right, so welcome everybody to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. We're very happy to welcome Emily Polly, who's an associate professor of history at Dickinson uh, in the US. And she is going to um, talk today about her brand new book, very recently, or to be published, um, The Nature of the Future, Agriculture, Science and Capitalism in the Antebellum North uh, which is with Chicago University Press. So um, we're happy to welcome Emily. I'll turn it over to you. All right. Hi everyone. Um, I'm
1: really delighted to be talking to you all and I want to thank Dolly and the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Series and the University of Stavanger for hosting this series and it's really great to be able to speak about my work at this kind of time. Uh, I also want to acknowledge the obvious, uh, that this is a weird time to be talking about early American agriculture, not only because of the pandemic, but also obviously here where I am in the States, because of the protests against murders caused by institutional anti-Blackness and racist policing, which are highlighting a lot of structures of American racism that we've known about for a long time. I'm not going to suddenly pretend that my work is about those structures or uh, particularly vital to understanding them. Uh, But I do want to make clear that this talk and this book is not a place where I'm escaping from those histories. Agricultural improvement, this global system of agricultural modernization and science in the 18th and 19th centuries is part of the same world that produces racist violence. Improvement as a global movement promoted the genocide of native peoples and the taking of their land and often the expansion of slavery and the appropriation of the knowledge of people of color and also the naturalization of white settlers and their agro ecosystems in spaces they had occupied for only a few decades. And that is definitely happening in my story we get a little sentimental in the US about Northern 19th century mixed farms, which are usually imagined as populated by white families. And we sort of see them as our sources of virtue and national character, and that's a big problem. And I hope that that will come out in our conversation a little bit today. And I've chosen reading selections uh, with that in mind. So what am I doing in this book? So my training is in the history of science, and I'm interested in the kind of knowledge that is made about the living world, but not by people who are acknowledged as scientists. Most historians of biology and natural history, at least when I was getting started a very long time ago, (laughs) uh, really focused on wild species, in particular on the kinds of natural history that led to Darwin. And I came to see that as a blind spot. Uh, So when we're interested in what people in the past understand about the non-human world, I think this won't come as a shock to environmental historians. We need to notice how many people are managing small ecosystems for a living and have intimate knowledge of those ecosystems. And that's where basically all of my work comes from, right? What kinds of knowledge comes from cultivation? And in particular, how does that knowledge change with the expansion of markets? So for this book, I'm interested in the particular phenomenon of agricultural improvement, which is this global movement of agricultural societies and agricultural fairs and agricultural journals. And I would argue uh, also agricultural commerce that has roots in the agricultural capitalism of landed elites in 18th century Britain, but uh, that spreads through the British empire. It's taken up by American elites in the 18th century and really expands in the 19th century. Um, I am interested in a particular place and time. Uh, My book says the antebellum north, but I focus on New York State in the years between the opening of the Erie Canal and the Civil War. So between 1825 and 1861. I focus on New York State because it's the largest center of American improvement in the antebellum period, uh, the period before the Civil War. And New Yorkers define a lot of the agenda of agricultural science going forward. And that's not too surprising because New York state is where the richest farmers live. It has hugely productive agriculture, the most productive state uh, in the union. It has enormous national state uh, natural science budgets, uh, which it uses uh, kind of larger than federal budgets. It has control of the passage between the Midwest and the coast. So it has privileged uh, commercial access to a lot of markets and all of those things uh, really helped the explosion of improvement there. I'm interested also in a particular moment, which is the 1830s, 1840s and 50s, um, where improvement really takes off. So agricultural affairs become very common in the States and they have tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of visitors. In New York, I estimate that there are maybe 10,000 active participants. That's a very big community for a historian of science. Um, That's obviously not the majority of New York farmers, but it is a powerful and vocal minority, and it's the biggest scientific community in the early republic. So, when I say that improvement is a scientific community, what do I mean? Partly, improvers see themselves as scientific, and they use that word. Improvers are using forms of knowledge that we still recognize as science, disciplines like chemistry and geology and botany and meteorology, lots of different sciences, in fact, because mixed farms are pretty complicated objects of knowledge. But improvement also has some general features that hold its different investigations together. For one thing, and, and this is where my title comes from, improving science is futuristic. Okay, so what does that mean? In a lot of sciences, right, the job of the scientist is to describe the world as it is. So naturalists go out into the world to find what is there, to collect species and to bring them home. Maybe geologists are mapping existing strata of rock. These are sciences of inventory. But agricultural science is about landscapes that are not there yet, and species that are not there yet. So describing, say, a beautiful variety of apple, which they do all the time, An improver is not talking about an existing population of trees. They're usually trying to create a population, often by selling it. So often the person who is talking about the apple is a nurseryman and they have product to move. So improvement is also not a disinterested science. I don't know that there are really disinterested sciences, but improvement is directly, (laughs) visibly not disinterested. So that doesn't mean that the improving world is not according to improvers, natural. Improvers imagine a god who works through the economy. Their experiments and their prizes and their observations claim to find the signs that god has left about the shape of that future economy. And I'm really interested in how knowledge making works in a system that's based on those assumptions, a system where people are marketing the things that they're describing, trying to bring particular landscapes about, trying to define true value. They're sometimes using profit as proof of truth. And I'm also making a gesture in the book overall. I don't know if it's going to come out in the particular uh, excerpts that I have chosen about the relationship between science and capitalism. So we sometimes talk about science as a sort of rationalizing force within capitalism. Or sometimes we go the other way and we say capitalism is a rationalizing force within science. There's rationality there. Anyway, science provides capitalism with a set of stable value, uh, with some kind of calculable certainty, right? That does not happen in antebellum improvement in the United States. Improving science fuels the same kinds of bubbles and volatility and competing uh, definitions of value as the rest of the antebellum economy does. There are always multiple competing futures being promoted by directly financially interested experts. And we cannot easily sort the rational from the irrational, even retrospectively actually. And this is something that we've said for a long time about urban capitalism in the cultural history of capitalism, but we've kind of made farmers exempt from it, right? They're either anti-capitalist and anti-market or they're very hard-headed rationalists. Um, To give you a sense of what improving knowledge looks like, I'm going to read a couple passages from chapter five. Um, The technology doesn't allow for pictures. uh, So I'm gonna start with a picture description which is pretty detailed because I couldn't get the rights uh, because it's to a puzzle um, from the 1980s. Okay. So here's the book, it has a big chicken on it. Okay. There's a kind of map that I had several versions of as a child. Sometimes they were posters, sometimes they were puzzles, but they always covered each state with a piece of food. Idaho had its potato, Texas, its longhorn steer, California, it's a bunch of grapes, and Wisconsin, I'm from Wisconsin, a piece of cheese. Despite their cartoonishness, such maps are remarkable artifacts. They map a real living landscape, the actual habitat of billions of corn plants, tens of millions of cattle and orange trees. At the same time, they naturalize a landscape built on fragile contingent social structures, A hodgepodge of indigenous American and global techniques and organisms assembled by imperial and commercial structures and spread over violently appropriated territory. The organisms pictured are commodities, most of them also reached their current habitats through trade networks, their ancestors purchased from catalogues and at auctions. Making this landscape seem natural, making Wisconsin seem like dairy land and California the natural home of French grapes, has taken an enormous amount of work. It's easiest to see this work by going back to a time before it seemed to be complete. In antebellum New York, the kinds of regional agricultural reputations displayed so confidently in my 20th century map were still markedly unstable, made so by a disorderly and rapidly shifting landscape. After the Erie Canal opened, first growth forests were hacked down and replaced by fields and eroded soil from newly plowed hillsides silted up rivers. Old soils in the Hudson Valley rebelled at their former crops of wheat, even as newly uncovered layers of decomposed leaves in Western New York sprouted what would become Genesee wheat, a new global good. At the same time, new roads, canals, and railways made previously loosely connected landscapes sharply relevant to each other. Farmers in western New York, then Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan undercut the grain prices of eastern farmers while newly numerous mouths in New York City clamored for eggs, milk, fruit, and cheese. In the midst of these changes, individual New Yorkers making individual decisions reorganized their state into regions of food like those on the map described above, occupying or obliterating older Haudenosaunee food landscapes. Okay, skipping ahead. We sometimes tell the story of regionalization in a way that implies a certain inexorability. Farmers, perceiving the different natural capacities of the landscape this story goes, rearranged it to meet the demands of hungry markets. Among improvers, this sense of inexorability was stronger. They were convinced that they were treading a path laid out by unchanging natural laws. They expected that like Great Britain, they would soon have regions of cheese, meat, hops, or fruit, and that the place of those regions was predetermined. On the ground, however, the process of regionalization was chaotic and often painful. The landscape differed radically from its British models. Economic information was fragmentary and visions of the future were both plentiful and hard to seize. While some ventures like the hop boom made instant insecure fortunes, others like the Merino's uh, simmered for decades, boomed, and then withered in the face of new taxes. Claims of natural regional adaptation to particular crops were common, and the effort to persuasively predict future agricultural regions would become a major improving project during the 1830s and 1840s. Making claims about the destinies of particular regions required myriad acts of imagination, interpretation, persuasion, and disciplined performance. To understand them, we will follow the struggles of one performer, Zadok Pratt, in his transparent bid for the reputation of Prattsville. Pratt's machinations reveal a wider culture of economic storytelling and show how the seemingly top-down visions of the state could be composed of a mosaic of booster claims. At the same time, it shows how accounts of divinely intended regionalization could be used to conceal the labor and skill needed to create valued agricultural environments. In Pratt's case, they hid a landscape of market development built on women's expertise. Okay, so a lot of this chapter is about Zadok Pratt and his efforts to capture another county's better reputation uh, for the town that he basically owns and that he has environmentally devastated with his tanning business, which has deforested the mountains. So. He uses lots of different kinds of knowledge to make the claim that butter naturally belongs in the Catskill Mountains, including settler's tree knowledge, uh, looking at the trees to see the real capacity of the land. Uh, He uses new geological surveys, which uh, New York is conducting at a very lavish scale. And then he creates a demonstration farm and publishes the results of his experiments through all kinds of improving print and state reports and journals and pamphlets. And he takes animals from this farm to the fairs. This is a huge promotional effort. And finally, he's able to build his version of uh, his story of his place into official reports of the state. So it looks like the state is surveying New York, but it's actually publicizing Pratt. Uh, Pratt is actually a kind of hilarious, self-promoting character. Uh, One of the things he's still known for in upstate New York is commissioning like huge carvings of his own face and his many accomplishments, which are in the hills overlooking Prattsville still. Um, It was supposed to be his tomb, but it leaks, so he's not buried there. Um, But this kind of promotional work um, to claim a natural reputation, this is pretty normal behavior. There's a lot of seemingly centralized knowledge and improvement that's made from this kind of speculative, clearly self-interested performance. Um, And I just want to turn to a moment in this chapter where I talk about adaptation, which is a key concept in natural history, but which is also really important to improvement in different ways, and which can kind of give us a sense of what it really means to believe that nature is built for profit. Okay. Adaptation, the closeness of fit between structure and purpose, is a word so frequently used in improving texts that it becomes almost invisible. Often it refers to human acts of design. Using the laws of mechanics, plows could be better adapted to the soils they were to overturn, and animals and plants could be better adapted to their places through selection, hybridization, and acclimatization. As with the principles of agricultural machinery, adaptation had a double meaning seen in wild organisms in the fitness of flattened teeth to grinding grass or hook seeds to the fur of unwary animals. It offered evidence of a different designer, the divine watchmaker most famously described in the work of the natural theologian William Paley. I talked for a bit about how Paley is very important in this period in the US. Just as American naturalists saw the wing of the bat or the human eye as structures demonstrating a purposeful design, improving New Yorkers expected to uncover providential intention built into their landscape. The most frequently trumpeted evidence of this in antebellum New York was the extraordinary crossways break in the mountains that became the Erie Canal. Canal projector Gideon Hawley exclaimed in his first promotional letter, it appears as if the author of nature informing Lake Erie with its large head of water into a reservoir and the limestone ridge into an inclined plain, had in prospect a large canal to connect the Atlantic and continental seas to be completed at some period by the ingenuity and industry of man. New York was a half-built landscape awaiting the builders of canals. It was in this standard vein that governor and improver William Seward would argue in 1839 that nature had herself demanded three railroad lines. The policy of our state is so legibly written upon its surface, he told the state legislature, that to err in reading it or to be slothful in pursuing it is equally unpardonable. Claims of destiny were not uncontested. Seward's natural railroads led to the home counties of his political allies, as the Albany papers pointed out. However, as battles for canals and railroads saturated political rhetoric and threw different parts of New York into competition, a wider array of New Yorkers became used to manipulating the language of providential regional destiny. Adaptation of particular places to particular functions was an expected feature of both wild and cultivated landscapes naturalists books floras and faunas described bounded natures uh, sorry nations of organisms created for a particular place and adapted to it and to each other improvers drew on a related concept most plants and animals the dairyman's manual explained in 1839 have their natural zone beyond which they deteriorate uh, or do not live the potato for instance deteriorates south of latitude 40. Such ideas were not confined to textbooks. An 1837 advertiser hoping to sell two farms adapted to wheat in Chemung County worked with the same assumptions. To perceive an inherently purposeful, specialized landscape was also to see a landscape intended for commerce. Trade came from difference. The different functions of landscape were intended to create a uniting market. The British agricultural geologist and chemist, James F. W. Johnston expressed a common sentiment in writing, quote, All study of natural history and of physical geography shows that the deity intended that one part of the world should minister to the wants of another and that they should mutually interchange commodities and productions. For Johnston, writing in a tradition stretching back through Adam Smith and David Hume to Plato and Plutarch, this became an argument for free trade. Perfect freedom of commercial intercourse, he wrote, is consistent with and pointed to all the arrangements and productions of soils, climates, and seasons. Some American improvers, by contrast, suggested that the different landscapes in the United States would bind the Union together as an internally self-supported system. Each district of our country, the author of the Dairyman's manual commented, seems adapted to some peculiar culture, rendering each dependent upon the others as if to unite us closer in the bonds of fellowship and good feeling. Differentiation could thus justify economic nationalism and free trade at once. Unlike the flora and fauna of natural history, however, the adapted landscapes of uh, of improvement were incomplete. Improvers did not simply observe natural laws, they were also to carry them out. In a speech to the Greene County Agricultural Society, Zadok Pratt told his audience that the mission of improvement was to discover ways to quote, produce all the results that the creator ever designed to put within our reach. Where naturalists described existing places, canal projectors and agricultural improvers looked at one landscape and saw another. Gazing at the Adirondack Mountains, the improving scientist Ebenezer Emmons imagined the herds of cattle and flocks of sheep that may one day give life and animation, where the silence of the day is broken only by the wind rustling through an unbroken forest. Americans were not unusual in projecting elaborate, invisible future landscapes over quite different real places. As European empires expanded and European landholders appropriated commons and wastelands at home, such acts of imagination had become commonplaces of the global improving project. Thus in 1840, Charles Bruce, superintendent of tea on the Assam frontier had assured the agricultural and horticultural society of India that Assam would soon rival China in the production of global luxuries. The whole of the country is capable of being turned into a vast tea garden, he promised, the soil being excellent and well adapted for the growth of tea. Almost invariably, accounts of the hidden economic function of landscape also justified the subjection, removal, or extermination of people not included in the projected future. Charles Bruce's vision of a tea garden on the Assam frontier depended on violent annexation. Likewise, when hopeful New Yorkers called their towns things like Mount Merino, Wheatland, or Butter Hill, they knew themselves to be overriding a landscape very recently occupied by Haudenosaunee and Algonquian peoples. Mount Merino, named for the 500 sheep sent there during the Merino mania, was a hopeful retelling of Oriskany Creek, which uh, the Oneida named for the nettles that grew there. The continued resistance of the Seneca in western New York kept the state legislature actively scrambling to extinguish Indian land rights and constantly renaming and claiming their land. More broadly, assumptions about the connection between particular places and kinds of bodies ran deep into antebellum and Imperial British accounts of white adaptation to temperate climes and the consequent inevitability of settler societies and of black adaptation to labor in agonizing heat or the ill suitedness of Native Americans to survive on their own land. When Pratt described cattle of European descent as adapted to the Catskills, he was implicitly making claims about other bodies of European descent as well. And with that, uh, I'm gonna turn things over uh, to questions.
0: Great, thank you so much for this introduction of this book. Um, I wanted to just kick us off with, uh, I have many questions, but one question about the relationship between improvements. So it sounds like this is what all of your your guys are talking about, and progress. Mm. Um, uh, the relationship between those two words, are they the same? Do they imply something different? Um, and then along with that, of course, at this time, the the progress of um, settlement westward. Mm. Right? Um, so what's the relationship between those?
1: I think um Improvers would have thought of progress as a track that stretched before them and improvement as the means to get there. Uh, So they saw progress as a natural phenomenon, but a phenomenon that uh, required work. Also, um, they were mostly post-millennial evangelicals. And so uh, they saw themselves as not just so their progress was not just working towards a perfectly modern society, but also towards the second coming of Jesus. Um who they saw as uh, that he, his, his second coming would be preceded by a thousand years of prosperity. And so their progress has an end point, which is not common necessarily to all of the versions of progress that we see um, throughout the, the kind of the world of improvement more globally.
2: All
0: right, Ariel, you have a question.
3: Hi, Emily, that was uh, very interesting. Uh, looking forward to reading the whole book. Um, and uh, uh, learning a, a lot more about uh, the stuff you're talking about, which is, um, it seems very super interesting and, and important. Um, not surprisingly, my question is about the state. So uh, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about um, how uh, the things you describe uh, are changed or maybe not um, uh, in the years after the Civil War with the uh, creation of the USDA. And I'm especially thinking about maybe like the first 20 years of the USDA, which are almost completely ignored in all history. I mean, as far as I can tell, there really is no history of the first 20 or so years of the USDA. And I think it's um, particularly interesting uh, and maybe significant because this is, of course, the period that coincides with Reconstruction in the South, where you might think the USDA would have had a role to play, um, right, in, in remaking Southern agriculture after the end of slavery. And it's just very unclear what that role uh, was, I mean, what, one thing that it certainly was doing was gathering statistics, but I, but I imagine that a lot of your New Yorkers were um, either involved directly or, or somehow informing uh, the kind of, you know, general sort of orientation of the u s a Do you have any thoughts on this?
1: I mean, my sense is, right, okay, so my project stops in 1861 because I was like, oh, after the war, a number of things happen, um, And in particular for non-Americans, the state gets, the federal state suddenly starts to take action. I think if you look at post-war agricultural science, you see kind of influential New Yorkers all over the place. And I have not looked at it at the federal level, but if you look at the experiment station level, there are, um, uh, uh, I think the, I would say, I guess there are two forms of influence. One is, this is a place where a lot of improvers who had political interests, and I know you know a lot about this and more than me actually, um, uh, suddenly kind kind of can swing into action and get federal support for things that they've been trying to do at the state level. The other is that the agendas that are set by antebellum improvers who are often trying to get support from the state for experimental farms and all kinds of things that they don't get until after the war, that those agendas start to be carried out. So the experimental uh, stations really look like the model farm plans that improvers have been demanding for the previous five decades. And And I can sort of see Uh, the same kinds of questions moving into them. I think that you start to see a really big, I probably would uh, turn to Charles Rosenberg actually still, and say that you really start to see a big change in the second generation. uh, Once there start being more uh, people who can imagine themselves as scientists, who have what would look to us more like scientific training, who have professional aspirations outside of improvement. and who start to see improvers as a kind of um, pain in the neck, I might say, right? Um, and one of the things that I have wanted to say to historians of agricultural science is, you know, they tend to imagine the relationship between uh, agricultural scientists of the late 19th century and uh, and the people they describe as farmers <laughs> as um, A relationship between scientists and people who are suspicious of science and when i look at those debates i don't see people who are suspicious of science i see people who uh want the kinds of science that they got used to before the civil war right who wanted particular kinds of experimental forms like like for example uh they uh often demand accountings at the end of an experiment of whether the experiment was profitable right and Uh, historians have looked at that as being like, farmers are far too hard headed for this airy fairy science. But like, that's something that Arthur Young tells people is how you tell truth is happening, is if there's an account at the the end. So I think there are a lot more formal structures uh, before the war. And then those get kind of, maybe in the 1880s and 90s, they start to look, they get kind of uh, separated from agricultural science or the practice of agricultural science more
0: clearly. Does that make sense? Okay. Great. Um Sidharth, you have a question.
4: Yeah. Thanks, Emily. Great talk. Sorry if I if you pick up a bit of noise in the background. Um so I when I was listening to you, I was reminded of uh, Arun Agrawal's environmentality, Tanya Lee's the Will to Improve. I don't know if uh, how much you know this uh, political ecology literature, but um but um there, should... there's certain different they're set in different times, but kind of going into the idea of the environmental subject making. And uh, and then I was struck by the kind of examples you highlighted, especially of the different fruits and foods um, associated with different U.S. states, of the idea that there's an economic project, right? Um, there's also also a land grab project at most uh, any time in history and so on. And so I, I, was, I was wondering if you can say something about intentionality, to what extent are these, is it? helpful in that period which in your case presages this kind of 20th century developments and is more than 19th and kind of like seems to be that it's the the mindset of what reform should be in the first place seems to you're tracing this discontiguous pattern that seems to continue today and given that it goes from the US to other parts of the world you could say that a lot of that should be apparent in the 20th century in other places also so Indonesia, India and so on. Um So How helpful has it been to think of it in terms of intentionality of particular kinds of actors forcing their interests and orchestrating um, in that direction versus kind of contestation of different sorts that comes together? Like, was there a lot of co-mingling of actors with potentially discrete agendas and then they merged?
1: Hmm. Okay, so I would say actually uh, two things. One is that Ariel has uh, got a book coming out Uh, which I think is very going to be very clear about kind of continuous developmental agendas. Um, So you should read that book. It's going to be great. Um, I would say that in the New York context, um, I actually see it going uh, more than one direction at once. Isn't that helpful? So In the early days of improvement in New York, uh, New York uh, improvement is sort of the property of New York's landlordly class. So New York has big uh, kind of uh, manners and people who see themselves as semi-aristocrats who continue to exist after the revolution because they were kind of necessary for the revolution to happen. And they are Western speculators in Western New York land, they have tenants, and they pretty much see themselves as being the American equivalents of the kinds of modernizing landlords that we see in Britain itself, right. They have a collapse. uh, Because uh, they overextend themselves in investments and uh and their tenants start refusing to pay rent around the panic of 1837 and so when i say i have a collapse like they lose the most famous of them lose their lands and their tenants and everything kind of explodes for them and so this very clear developmental narrative um kind of breaks down right improvement had been their baby but that is also the moment when improvement expands and so one of the things that i am interested in is that if we look Include, including not just the people at the highest reaches of improvement, but throughout uh, like all of the different kinds of people who are improvement, there are lots of different people who are using improvement as um, a stage to argue for particular kinds of agricultural futures. Fe- so resistant tenants use improvement and go to agricultural fairs and, and kind of present their case that uh, they that, uh, Owning land and avoiding Tennessee is going to be kind of the, the true mode to improvement. Um, middling farmers are um, in some ways they're supposed to be the targets of improvement, but uh, they're using improvement to kind of work out a lot of their anxieties about rural refinement, but also to try to remain profitable at a time when um, markets are kind of going up and down. There are all kinds of uh, wealthy urbanites who get, deeply involved in improvement as a way of uh, moving into political circles, as a way of making rural investments, or as a way of performing rural retirement, which is also a way of um, uh, demonstrating your credibility uh, to credit agencies, right, which are starting to uh, tell whether they are solvent or not. Um, So I've spent more time trying to show that there's difference But I would agree with what I bet Ariel would say, I'm speaking for Ariel right now who's muted, that's not cool. (laughs) Um, In that I think that um, this is gonna be a really uh, important, the the, the improvement is sort of taken up by the Republican party eventually. Um, And and that they have more coherent projects for improvement than appear on the ground. But in my final uh, chapter, which I think a lot of people will find extremely annoying, um maybe i did this deliberately (laughs) i think that improvement has a lot of different descendants and we sort of want to see in it industrial agriculture and we can definitely see in an industrial agriculture because improvement um, turns into land-grant colleges and experiment stations and you can see their fingerprints very very clearly there but if we also look at the people who claim uh alternative agriculture they're often also looking back to 19th century mixed farms and the traditional farms that they think that they're looking at are improving farms and the forms that they use to promote those farms which are often agricultural journals where they're marketing products and have kind of particular kinds of knowledge those are also very recognizably improvement like like i see them uh, in this same group of people so um i see improvement before the civil war as being a kind of there are lots of different pathways emerging from it, and it has more than one descendant. And then the, the final descendant, I think, is uh, corporate knowledge production within, um, within agriculture, right? So one of the things that really helps improvement take off is this big network of agricultural warehouses and agricultural journals, which often come from the warehouses and people who are trying to sell stuff uh, and make knowledge about goods. And we tend to talk about agricultural knowledge as happening within the state. Uh, and Actually, if we look at how uh, modern farmers are consuming knowledge about how to produce industrial agriculture, some of it comes from the Land Grant Colleges, but a lot of it comes from advertising claims about how to make the land profitable, right? Um, And there's a lot of interchange between the corporate and the state, but I want to make sure that the corporate is still in there. Oh,
2: Dolly, you're-
0: Yeah, I'm on. Uh, What historians really, are good at actually is showing that well lots of things come in and and lots of things go out right it's, it's not actually just a really clean line uh of oh one you know from, from a from a past to a present to a future um that's just not the way things work um and i think that's a really important part of what we as historians do so this is a
1: gesture isn't it it's like in and then out right yeah. that's-
0: I like it. So, um, Dominique, you had a question.
5: See, yeah, there you are. Thank you, I hope you can hear me all right. Um, Yes, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. It sounds really fascinating and also uh, Dolly Great Jumper. Um, um, Just the the question is, uh, for my knowledge of the kind of developments of natural history and improvement uh, in Central Europe a couple of years, or decades before that, um, and so I was wondering because the the Central Europeans, when they describe these landscapes that they want to improve, mm. um, they kind of uh, refer a lot to the past, but also on a kind of aesthetic uneasiness with the kind of unused landscape, and yes. I was and, and unused in the sense of what they think sh- should be used, not what actually people use it for who they don't get a lot of times. So I was wondering if that discussion is also happening in, in your cases. And then another question, um, if I may, about the familiarity of the people who write about the landscapes with the landscapes. So are these people all, have they grown up on the, in these landscapes? Have they lived there or is it all, is it kind of a, yeah, how's the relationship, like the, the, the personal relationship to the landscape?
1: Right. Oh, these are great questions. OK, so first of all, I would say that there's a huge. Um, imp- so American improvers uh, really uh, get a lot of their texts from Britain, uh, and that's partly because there's no um, real strong copyright laws. And so it's easy for the agricultural journals just to take stuff that's written about Scotland and then pff- drop it into their journals in the, early, in, the, in the very early years of improvement, I think, in, in, in the US. And so we start to see a lot, I think the discourse of wasteland, uh, which is what you would see in kind of Scottish internal colonialism. Um, but I think we also see in a kind of broader European context that gets moved into the American context for sure. Um, and also, there are all kinds of observers who come and describe the landscape, who come from Europe and who definitely see it and write, "It's just irregular, and there are so many knobbly stumps, and you know, it's it's just that it actually is really overwhelming to them." Uh, and Americans read those descriptions uh, with interest and a certain amount of hurt pride. Um, so I think the wasteland kind of narrative intersects with the language of wilderness, which is what. White Americans use to say that Native people aren't there um, when they are quite visibly there in Western New York, uh, just to be clear. Um, and I think you see some similar kinds of arguments for displacements of uh, European peasants and European people who work upon the land uh, as you see, we would see kind of elsewhere. And Frederick Johnson writes about this, I think, uh, uh, pretty well too. I really like that work. Um, what was the second question? Um, can you remind me? I'm sorry, Dalia, I, this, I realize this requires Zoom.
5: I'm sorry, it was about how, if people were familiar with the landscape, how familiar they were.
1: Right. OK, so people are pretty familiar with the landscape. Um, there is a certain tendency to describe uh, a lot of the most famous improvers as um, sometimes the language of book farmer is tossed around. Um, often the people that I am looking at they have farms themselves. Um, they, the wealthiest among them um, are pretty sensitive by the 1830s and 40s to the uh, accusation of book farming. And so they tend to do what I call conspicuous production. So even if they have servants, if they're describing an experiment, they'll be like, um, you know, there'll be a particular moment where a delicate or dangerous thing is done and they will say, I did that, right? My hand was right here. Um, and that is part of their knowledge claim. I think there's a break in New York. One of the reasons that New York is interesting to me is that the Hudson Valley is very long uh, settled by whites and has uh, been held in these manors, you know, for, for more than a century. And uh, the, when Western New York, a lot of the land is relatively new and it's quite climatically different. Um, so there's a sort of sense that people are often moving into spaces that are different from the spaces that they're used to, that have different kinds of soil. Um, and also everybody in New York is shocked through the whole first half of the 19th century by how fast the forests are disappearing, how fast the rivers are silting up. So even if someone has been on the landscape for decades, the landscape that they're looking at is not the landscape that they're used to. Um, So I think that's my answer.
0: (laughs) Great, Uh, Keith, you have a question.
6: All right, thanks, Emily. It's great to see you and the book looks wonderful. Uh, can't wait to read it. I'm, I wanted to ask you a question about the past for a book about the future. And in part, mm. it's because the 17th century improvers that I'm most familiar with are talking in ways that don't necessarily feel that dissimilar from some of yours. But yours have railroads and canals and steam dredging. Right, they They have a lot happening that's not there in the 17th century. So I'm wondering how they're engaging with the fact that there's been quite a lot of American improvement by the time your improvers are writing about improving. And then the second one, and this is maybe a little bit more specific, for a number of the early modern improvement texts that I've looked at, there really seems to be a sense in a sort of universal transformability of land Whereas, in your case, you're getting some more particularity showing up that this would be a merinoville rather than either a merinoville or a wheatville or something right there yeah. it doesn't seem like everything is quite as fungible as it does in the early modern texts that I'm more familiar with. thanks a lot
1: Oh, I like both of those questions so much. I'll try and remember the second one I, apparently i my pen does not work um but okay, so question about the past. I would say that the improvers that I look at haven't fully erased the memory of early American improvers, uh, but they tend to look at the past of other places as evidence of their future, right? Uh, So they tend to say, and and Britain is the easiest example for them, but it's not the only example for them. So I have a whole chapter about how improvers in the 19th century uh, think that America is going to be a silk empire uh, like China. And they spent a lot of time thinking uh, that It's going to be like China, and actually, right, there are so many American, previous American efforts to turn the states into a silk empire, just like everywhere, right, everywhere is trying to turn into a silk empire simultaneously, see also Marino's, Um, that they do have to contend with Americans at that point, because they have to say, why did it fail over and over again? Yes, Um, it is a little bit uh, weird, because they are also like, mulberries grow very well here as you may have dug them out of your yard, as I have dug them out of my yard, right? Chinese mulberries. And, uh, and so they can see the remnants of white mulberries left from the 18th century. Um, and from, right, if we get back to Virginia, we can go kind of a long way back, right? With, with, um, with silk improvement. I think though, another thing that helps tie all of these things together is the importance of Rome and the modernity of Rome. Right, so New York thinks that it's like everywhere New York thinks that it's Rome and it calls itself the Empire State, and there are places there called like Rome and Ithaca and Syracuse, like they're not hiding their hand towns called Ovid um and I think that someday I would like to do a maybe we could do a panel at a big story about. Uh, Rome as, as, as agricultural modernity. So they're reading Roman texts and they're imagining Roman villas and, um, you know, and kind of recreating Ovid. And it creates a certain uh, uh, stylistic, common imaginary that I think runs through a lot of improvement for a long time. Uh, and It makes the past and the future blur in some kind of interesting ways and of course it also informs their concerns about their potential failure because Americans always worried, just like everyone, about becoming the Roman Empire and then falling. So when we can do miming shapes of time, that's another one. Um,
0: so the was on fungibility of the landscape and how it seemed like they figured out rather quickly that they they could grow one thing or that this should be a landscape of X and and that the hill over there that would be a landscape of Y. Right. Um,
1: <laughs> they sort of go back and forth uh as as is convenient, right? So there's definitely a sense that regions exist and that they have natural limits, but what goes into the regions is pretty um is pretty variable. So the landscape of Mount Merino was, uh, you know, this is destined for sheep. And then sheep collapsed as a, as a profitable storyline. And so then suddenly the story of Mount Merino was actually dairy again, right? Um, and then there are some, we might call them cosmopolitan uh, species that can be moved across the entire landscape. And silk is a really good example, right? One of the reasons that it's possible to have a national craze for sil- for mulberry trees, which there is in the 1837, 1838, where people are selling mulberry trees all over the place, uh, a particular variety of Chinese mulberry, is that you can plant it not only in the good soil of everywhere, but you can plant it in the crappy soil of everywhere. And there's a, quite a lot of terrible soil in a lot of New York by this point, because New York, uh, has been uh is is bumpy and deforested and a lot of the soil kind of cascades away quite rapidly so um i think that people move back and forth from saying like we can we can change the landscape enormously beyond what you would think and so it's actually more valuable than you think it is To but also this specific future is the one uh is the one that is there does that make sense yeah and sort of a sense too with breeds, right? That we can change them enormously, but that some of them belong in some places and some of them belong in other places. So they are adapted to particular, pre-adapted to particular kinds of landscapes. And part of the job of the breeder is to change the body, but part of the job is also find the fit, right?
0: Exactly. And I mean, I, I love your comments, about thinking about Rome um, as the future, um in agriculture, I think that kind of project would be really good to think um across the humanities because of course within literary studies a lot of people have studied the pastoral that also has arise at exactly the same time and the way that the pastoral is envisioned as the, the landscape that you should inhabit in in, in this rural ideal uh mm-hmm. that would be really interesting uh to think together with um art history as well of course and the way that your landscapes are are um shown in art and uh made out to be yeah roman ruins and things get put into things that that um yeah certain aesthetics um so chris you have a
2: question Let's see if i yes yep. Here.
7: Hello, thank you so much for this talk. I'm really looking forward to the book. Um, I just have a question that picks up on a thread that's kind of uh, been brought up a bit about the relationship between white agricultural improvement and colonialism and colonization. Um, I think you mentioned, I I don't know if this is a line from the text or you were quoting one of these 19th century figures, but the very recently to be occupied by Haudenosaunee's land that was very recently occupied by. So I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, the, the degree of awareness these people um, expressed both in word and deed about this, right? The relationship between their, their ideas and practices of agricultural improvement and how that is potentially tied to colonization, ongoing colonization. But then also, um, especially the wording there recently to be occupied by, what about indigenous resistance to that? Um, or perhaps collaboration with it. Um, And then indigenous persistence, right? Land that is still that Haudenosaunee's and other indigenous peoples like Mohicans are still on in the 19th century and into the 21st century.
1: Okay, so I should say right away, Haudenosaunee people still live in upstate New York and plan to continue to live in upstate New York and New York is Haudenosaunee territory. Um, Military resistance by the Haudenosaunee has been over since the revolution in the period that I study. So they are they are capable of resisting mostly by legal means, um, and they do have uh, some legal means, and they they kind of fight quite hard. And there's um, some really great work by Lawrence Hauptman about how this is done. So um, the most uh, the New York improvers who are involved in the New York State Legislature, particularly, and New York improvers who are speculators in Western land, are regularly engaging with and when i say engaging with that's a that's a that's not the right word they are taking seneca land as fast as they can and they know for sure that it's there um at the same time they p- sort of participate in this same uh this very common american and not just american language of the vanishing indian where they uh, they take the land and then they say but of course we're taking the land because that that itself is a natural process and once we've taken the land of course it is not Influenced by uh, Haudenosaunee people anymore, it's sort of interesting because in the earliest movements westwards of whites, the first land that they occupy is obviously Haudenosaunee farmland because it's cleared and it's awesome, because Haudenosaunee people know where the good farmland is, and so they have um, they will so that land is taken before people start speculating. A lot of the land that they're then speculating on is forested land that Haudenosaunee people were not uh, farming, and that they then kind of. Conceptualize as wilderness um so i think that that kind of appearance and disappearance of the Haudenosaunee that's pretty common uh for american imperialism generally right um and one of the improving leaders john delafield writes a history of the seneca which is part of this conversion of native peoples into the ruins of America, right? So turning them into New York's antique past, um, and so James Fenimore Cooper, who obviously we all know from *The Last of the Mohicans*, he is the son of a New York land speculator um, who is kind of active in improvement, and he is converting Haudenosaunee people into myth way, way early in this process. Uh, so a lot of this stuff all happens at the same time. And people are able to tell quite different stories who live in the East, who are living on Algonquian land uh, than people who are living, say, in Buffalo, where the Seneca are right there.
0: Yes. And um, so we have two questions uh, left to go before we get to our time. So we have Angela and then Jenny. So Angela.
2: Hi, Emily. Hi. Uh, thank you. I really enjoyed that. I have two questions which are really quite different. So, the, the first one is I was really interested in your discussion about adaptation mm. and how these, uh, these guys are talking about uh, adaptation in terms of landscape and in terms of technologies and animals at the same time. So, w- would it be right to kind of say that they're basically seeing these things as interchangeable, or is that a horrible generalization? Um, I-
1: I think very much they're seeing them as interchangeable. There's some really, so I have a chapter on machines and, um, one of the things that is happening with, um, agricultural machinery in this period, uh, New York is huge in agricultural machinery. They're producing just bazillions of designs and there's lots and lots and lots of manufacturers. Um, and they are continually involved in patent disputes and public, uh, trials, which are a part of experimental culture of improvement. And, one of the things that in a patent dispute you have to argue about is sort of the property of the knowledge. Yes. And so one of the things that they're showing in the trials and that they're talking about is the, the, what they call the principles of, of machinery and the principles of machinery are these kind of elements of design, which are the idea. It may not be the function of the machinery because a lot of the machinery doesn't work very well, but they're trying to kind of create a, this, this, um, this saleable concept because the other way they make money is by licensing the principle to each other. And one of the ways that they justify the existence of the principle, since a lot of the machinery is quite simple, is by saying that they are assembling machinery that is based on uh, divine design. Uh, that it's imitating bodily movement, usually. Right? So a reaper is a person, <laughs> and a reaper is a machine. Uh, and some of the machines are referred to as automatons, and so um, and machines that work are are referred to as living, and machines that don't work or referred to as abortions. There's a lot of very direct kind of bodily language. So they definitely see them or argue that the machinery is um, both their idea and God's idea. And then they put it in their museums and their warehouses, which are also supposed to act as museums uh, up against the primitive plows of uh, people from India or people from Mexico. And that is also an argument about their kind of destiny and their capacity. Right. So it's it's there's this sort of merging of their intellect and God's intellect, which is pretty normal for improvement. Does that make sense? Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, so my other question was. Uh, so I teach um, uh, master students who are biologists in food security and I have teach them about knowledge exchange and basically agricultural, agricultural extension, and so i try and give them some context of the history of this and why kind of some of the ideas they might come into the course about kind of science improving things isn't necessarily actually the most pragmatic approach um but it's even though this is kind of really well established within extension studies now that you take a participatory approach it's still really quite a push to kind of get especially get biologists thinking about this differently. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about how ag history and environmental history can kind of help me in this task? Ooh. Hmm. I guess I have a couple
1: of thoughts. Um, One thought is that um, improvement is sort of... Expected by its organizers, its most active organizers, to be a participatory culture, right? So they want to create a culture of experiment. They're very anxious to get correspondents who will do agricultural experiments, and they want experiments to be kind of spread out across the landscape. And that's partly because uh, universal knowledge um, doesn't exist in agricultural experiment, because they recognize if they produce knowledge from a centralized space, it won't be generalizable to a varied landscape right? Um, I think um, they have kind of an interesting model for doing that and they see it both as persuasion, right? So people trying techniques for themselves will convince themselves that actually these techniques are quite good, but they might also find out that they're not suited to their place. And that's another place where adaptation comes in, right? This is not a a mode of culture adapted to this place. Um, Improvement, I think, Thinking about the history of agricultural science though, also as often the formalization of things that people are doing already is uh, really important, right? So a lot of agricultural improvement is supposed to take existing practice and explain why it works. Um, And improvers are pretty clear about that. They're like, we we need to kind of look across this landscape and see what people are doing and why it works. Then we need to think about kind of, you know, why does it work? And there are some very clear moments when you can see um, the vanishing of someone's practice into a discovery, because the person who publishes the experiment is suddenly the discoverer of something. And in the book, I have a few examples where uh, people are talking about Native American practices or people are talking to very openly about uh, enslaved people's knowledge about melon growing or or a kind of hilled corn or things like this, um, which are then described very clearly as the discovery of the white person who talked about them in this formal context first. Uh, So um, I think seeing this kind of two-way movement and often this huge just, you know, this is just so much movement upward of knowledge um, as being the basic form of agricultural science. I think that's really worth paying attention to.
0: Right, and Jenny um, wrote her question into chat, she was wondering about um, deforestation and whether that was perceived by these improvers then as a loss or not, and did they go back, these places that were deforested and they came back with trees later, of course it might have been a different kind of forest than what it had been, so how did they think about forestry?
1: Uh, you don't see a whole lot of complaining about deforestation um, by uh, New York improvers. Um, farm making, which is deforestation, is a huge occupation for n- people in New York who are not very well off. So a lot of farming in New York proceeds in two stages. A poor white family will come and cut down all the trees and make usable fields and then they'll sell land that they got for cheap for more. Um, And I think a lot of people see this as um, this is is an unqualified good. Yes, Uh, the trees are a huge pain in the neck. Um, People are sort of amazed when they see really enormous hemlocks and they'll sometimes describe them right before they cut them down or set them on fire, which is really normal. Uh, And one of the things James F.W. Johnston, who's a British uh, chemist who I actually refer to, um, he's really shocked when he travels to North America generally that people are uh, lighting birch trees on fire for fun you know he has a very different attitude to timber and he finds this totally freaky um the settler tree knowledge that i referred to very briefly is an example of this where if you look at a particular landscape um you see this what the species of the tree are and some of what you're looking at is the land's capacity to produce food particularly nuts and mast and things like that um But a lot of what you're seeing is the capacity of the soil that's underneath. So people are looking for oak openings or people are looking for elms because that's the sign of wheat land. Um, And so definitely this looking at trees and seeing non-trees is definitely the stage of forestry that we're in, um, in this text.
0: All right, I wanna thank Emily Polly for talking with us today about her new book, The Nature of the Future agriculture science and capitalism in the antebellum north
1: thank you so much this was really fun